let me jump in um, a little bit. There was a lot more in there to talk about, but I'm going to be sensitive of time. I want to talk a lot today about calling, a lot today about calling. Because I think when we're, di- when we're discussing, like, there are moments you step into where it's like, what would Jesus do? I'm really not, it's like, it's a little unclear. There's like competing, there's like kingdom ethic, there's, there's a lot of things going on. And I think oftentimes a, a pivotal variable when we as missionaries, as microchurches, as microchurch leaders, step into those kinds of moments, I actually think our calling has to be a pivotal variable in day-to-day wisdom. It's a source of day-to-day wisdom in those kinds of decision-making spaces. Your calling doesn't just give you like a future purpose to like slowly, like directorially move your life toward, but it gives you current wisdom that not every fight is to be engaged, not every opportunity is to be taken, not every suffering is to be endured. This scene reminds us not just of one other scene, but a lot of other scenes, uh, which is actually a typical literary device of Luke. Luke, not just in Acts, but in the Luke-Acts narrative. A lot of times Luke is intentionally trying to mirror other scenes because he wrote this as like one full volume, Luke and Acts. And this scene actually is mirroring, in the, in the, toward the end of this volume of Acts, it's mirroring this other scene toward the end of the volume of Luke. Um where Jesus is arrested on accusations that are not entirely true. He's, uh, that are accusations that are religious accusations. And he's brought, to, he's brought into custody by Romans. And Romans actually don't know what to do with these religious accusations. And they, the, Pontius Pilate is, is the one kind of like in control of the situation with Jesus. And he, at the end, he in the end kind of thinks he's innocent, washes his hands of him. Because by Roman law, I don't think he's actually done anything. But he also knows that if he releases him, it's just going to be a total nightmare, uproar, violence, riot. So he has to entrust Jesus to uh, the people, the will of the people, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, to decide. This is a religious accusation. You guys take care of it. I'll just kind of be here, just whatever you decide. It's a very similar situation. The commander here is the one who, who takes Paul in after religious accusations. The, the Roman commander does not know what to do with these religious accusations, uh, thinks, he's, thinks he's pretty much innocent of any kind of Roman law or Roman breach, entrusts him back to the Sanhedrin and the chief priest to say, can you guys figure this out? What's actually, what are the actual accusations here? Um, but Jesus is silent. He says nothing, receives the, the uh, 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 false accusation and unjust punishment, willfully steps into... Uh, 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 the unjust punishment, mocking, abuse, carrying a cross, going to his own death, his own death on a cross, and and advocates for his own in- innocence at almost no point. There's another scene that that we might be reminded of where Stephen earlier in this earlier in an Acts in Acts seven, he too is re- arrested on the same religious charges that Paul's under arrest on right now. That he that he's been going around speaking against the law in the temple. He's like bringing, he, he, he's detesting the law in the temple. And he's brought before whom? He's brought before the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. And he's questioned by whom? He's questioned by the high priest too. But when he's questioned, he doesn't say, he doesn't say silent. Nor does he like, like uh, uh, try to get his way out of it. He preaches the sermon of his life. 
he he preaches like an absolute uh, uh, um, uh, an, like the sermon of his life, and he actually like provokes toward the end of it anger and his own martyrdom. He goes to his own martyrdom because of how he responds in that situation. And Paul knew that suffering was coming in Jerusalem. He knew that he was going to be bound. He knew that death was a possibility. He kept telling people who were telling him, don't go there, that's going to happen. He kept telling them, I'm ready for it. Bring it on. And here he is, and, and he finds himself under arrest. He finds himself before trial. And what does he do? Does he go silent like a lamb, willing to just entrust himself to the will of God in this moment, sovereignty of God in this moment? God, do what you will here. I won't, I won't speak for myself. Does he, stand before, does he stand boldly for the truth and pe preach the sermon of his life? It's a mighty sermon. Finally getting an audience with these people, and he's wanted an audience with them forever. He finally gets it. He's going to take his chance and preaches. Really ensuring his own death, provoking his own death. Do you, do you hear him sitting there? I'm, not, I'm, I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus right now in this moment. No, you don't actually hear any of that. He doesn't do any of it. He pleads his innocence, actually, right away, instantaneously. He pleads his innocence, which provokes a response, and he returns verbal abuse for physical abuse, apologizes really quick for doing that, and then provokes a disagreement. He, 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 it's divide and conquer. There's a, I'm the common enemy. All these people actually don't like each other. I'm just the common enemy, so they're united around hating me. If I can just divide them again real quick, like remind them really quick that they don't like each other, then this will go away. And so he brings up the hope of resurrection to, be, to remind this whole crowd that's united against him, you actually aren't in unity. <laughs> and if I can just get you fighting with each other, uh, maybe I'll get out of this. He, he designs like a brilliant escape plan. To get out from under it. And suddenly, the people who, who two verses later, the Pharisees, two verses earlier were like, kill this dude, unbelievable, he hates our law. They're like, maybe an angel visited him. Maybe a, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, you know? He really seems wise. He, may, he has a lot to say. Should we give, let's give him a chance, you know? Suddenly like, all this animosity at each other's throats, and Paul's plan works. Paul's plan works. He gets pulled out of there. And I think there there could be we don't we don't we don't maybe approach the text this way, but I think it's fair if we're willing to approach the text and maybe it, to even consider the people in that in that world, the friends of Paul, the churches that they might actually hear news of this report, or there might be audiences who have read this in the past and thought, Paul's such a coward. What a disobedient coward. Couldn't follow in the way of Jesus. Couldn't follow in the legacy of Stephen. When he finally got an audience with people of like real power and real influence, and God could have like, the Spirit of God could have fallen on those people in a moment if the, if the gospel would have just been preached. And Paul, in the moment when it, when it really mattered, he was afraid. What a coward. If only Paul would have been wearing his WWJD bracelet, he would have remembered to just not say anything. Just take, just take whatever's coming. Just take whatever's coming. Or if he would have been wearing his WWJD bracelet, he, he, he could have been more, took a stand 
and been more hostile with these religious leaders. I read a book a few years ago by a guy named A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a book in 2007 called A Year of Living Biblically. Has anybody read that book, A Year of Living Biblically? This guy um, uh, decides for a year, he's not a believer, and he decides for a year to live the Bible as literally and thoroughly as possible. And, so he took, and then he wrote, he wrote about it, the experience, afterward. And he took eight months of that year to live out as literally as possible the Old Testament, and then four months to live out as literally as possible the New Testament. Now, that breakdown already means you don't understand the Bible. Uh, but this was his design. This is what he decided to do. And I, I, actually, it, I actually read the book for comedy, for humor, because a lot of it was really funny. And, and he intended for a lot of it to be really funny. He had um, so many stories, but one of them was that he, he couldn't lie, obviously. Ten Commandments. So he's following written law, but he's also follow, trying to follow as best he can ceremonial law, everything in the Old Testament. And one of them is you can't lie. You have to be like ruthlessly committed to the truth. And he tells this story about one time his wife's friends came to him and asked him, do you want to bring your kids out on a play date with us on Saturday morning to the park? And he responded to them because he's got to be committed to the truth. He responded to them, no, because I have no interest in being friends with any of you. <laughs> While he's wearing like a, like an ancient Near East traditional like garb, he's got like a big long beard. Because he decided, again, he doesn't understand the Bible, so he also, I don't know if he understands this, but he also decided to take a Nazarite vow. He didn't, he didn't cut his hair. Like, you, not everybody has to do that, but I guess he decided, I'm going to do this from this kind of perspective. So he didn't cut his hair. He, like, grew out a big, long beard. He wouldn't wear clothes made up, weaved together of multiple threads, so he had to wear, like, a, like one thread, kind of one type of thread kind of garments all the way through. And... Um, he was obviously wearing this like this gown and with a beard and he looks ridiculous and he was walking through a park and somebody came up to him and said, what are you doing? What is this? Some stranger. And he says, he explains himself really quick. I'm just trying to live the Bible as literally as I can for a year. And this person knew enough about the Bible to try to respond sarcastically. And this person responded to him and said, well, the Bible says that you have to stone adulterers and I'm actually guilty of adultery. So... Trying to just tell this person in the park, like trying to provoke this person in the park, like you can't actually do what you're trying to do. And A.J. Jacobs actually pulls out of his back pocket a sack full of pebbles, and he's like, I've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> just, I'm ready for this. <laughs> I'm ready for this. Just thro like throws a few pebbles at this stranger in the park. <laughs> Part of the reason why I've, I've again, I, I, I understand and I appreciate the spirit and the heart of what would Jesus do and the, and the WWJD movement and all that kind of stuff. But part of the reason why I started to grow uncomfortable with that philosophy is because it started to feel a little bit like trying to live the Bible literally every day. When, and it assumes that Jesus is this ancient person who lived and died. And you have to look at his life back there and try to discern what he would do right now. And it assumes that he couldn't actually just tell you right now that he actually is resurrected and he's alive. You see, you don't actually have to wonder what 
Jesus would do because you can ask him and he'll tell you what you should do right now. And I actually think Paul isn't just right in what he did here, but that it was the it was the right move, it was a good move, it was an ingenious move, it was a brilliant move, what he did here. The way that he handles himself. Because Jerusalem is not and has not ever been the destination of his life. The purpose of his life in this season. Paul's trying to get to Rome. He's trying, he's trying to get to the, end of the ends of the earth. This is what he feels his purpose is, his call is. The, 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 the thing that God has destined him for is leading him to. He just knew Jerusalem was a pit stop. He just knew that he, the only, for some reason the only way to do that is to go through Jerusalem. He, he just knew that that was the case. And so he's not saying, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. He's just saying, I'm willing to if it happens. But he's not going to go looking for it because he's discerning. Again, from his calling, from like a, a, a clarified, confident, empowered direction for his life, he's actually making a momentary decision based on that. I can actually discern this space because I actually know what God has said where, where I should be. And, 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 and I have to use that information that God that source of godly wisdom in this complex situation that he's in last week Tim Wynn brought this amazing word from from second Corinthians talking about that thorn in the flesh that Paul had and how to suffer well and 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 sometimes we 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 have suffering in our life that God allows because it's actually for our own good in some way he's redeeming it in some way so he doesn't want to take it away from us it's for and his grace is sufficient for us in the midst of that suffering and he had this line where he said uh, uh, he said, there is purpose in our pain. That God actually oftentimes has purpose in our pain. Uh, but I actually think this is a great countertext where there, there might actually be some pain that has nothing to do with our purpose. There might actually be some pain that we have the chance to lean into or step out of that actually has nothing to do with our purpose. It has nothing to do with meaning or future or calling. And for us to be able to discern that, I think, is pivotal, pivotal to know the pain that God has, that there is, is the suffering that we need to do well, because it's unavoidable in the thing that he's called us to. And then the suffering that we're taking on because we have some martyr complex that we have to be in the most painful situation in our life possible, and it actually has nothing to do with what God has asked us to do. Nothing at all. And so how do we know? How do we know, microchurch leader, missionary, how do we know when to lean into pain when to step out of it, when to provoke opposition, and when to find an escape from it, when to design an escape hatch out of it. And I think it has to do with your understanding of your calling, not just as a future dream, but as a source of daily wisdom from Jesus. Paul has a deep sense of calling to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. He wants to go to Rome. Eventually, he, wants, he just wants to go to the ends of the earth. He wants, to go, he wants to go, go, go to where people do not know. They don't have any access. There's nobody there who understands this, and he wants to go. That's where he feels like his purpose is. And that calling is informing the way he considers in his engagement with his day-to-day -day life. What he says yes to, what he says no to, the opposition he leans into, the opposition he escapes from, the pain he steps into, the pain he tries to sidestep. I was on the phone this last week with, a, with an old friend that um, uh, I discipled this guy when he was in college. And he's a teacher now. We haven't talked in a long time, long time. And he called this, and, and he called this line, he's still up in Illinois. 
He called us last week, and he just wanted to talk and catch up. And, it just, and he, sees, he sees teaching. He's a middle school teacher. He sees teaching as like his vocational called ministry. He's a priest in a parish. Teachers, amen. Yeah, I mean, what other way is there here? You know, so he sees this as like, this is, this is my, God has put me in here to, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God as best I can. It's a public school. And he was, uh, was kind of tr- telling me a little bit of a story that happened a few months ago where a student, all of his students know that he's a believer. He, he tries to be very careful about it uh, because he doesn't want to do ministry in a way that would jeopardize his ability to be there in the first place. So he's trying to be, you know, wise as serpent. Uh, and, 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 he's, and so he's always trying to, but if any kid, basically if any kid asks him, like comes to him and just says, like, what do you believe or... Can you help me with this from your worldview and perspective or something like that? He, he'll jump right into those opportunities. So all these kids like feel very loved and cared for. They know who he is. Uh, they go to him for advice so oftentimes during lunch hour or something. They like crash. They, during study hall, they'll just go to his room and work on their stuff. One of those kinds of teachers. And after school one day, a kid, um, there was a, a kid, I think sixth or seventh grade, that lost his brother earlier in the week to a shooting in a neighborhood. So this kid is just all week asleep all day or acting out or just kind of like there's just he's just not himself and the and the the kid stays after school after after one day and comes to the teacher uh my friend and just kind of like explains what's going on and just says man i don't really know what could you just pray for me the kid asks could you pray for me and so uh, my friend the teacher decides yeah of course i'll pray for you right now and so they just like bow their heads close their eyes he literally told me on the phone he didn't like he he wanted to lay hands on the kid but he intentionally chose not to because he's try he's just trying to be discerning of like space and try to be wise but in the midst of the prayer they're praying for like 2 3 4 minutes like pastoral prophetic prayer a few teachers walked by peered in saw what was happening and they like reported it as an incident to the principal and they like wrote up like a report and so eventually, I don't know how all this works, but eventually the, the, the teacher is, is a few weeks later standing before like a judiciary committee, like a few, board, a few school board members. Yes, a few school board members, a, maybe assistant principal or vice principal. I don't know. I don't know who else there, but he's got like a little judiciary committee. And they're just like investigating this, like what happened and uh, um, how could, the, you know, what could you do differently, all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, they're evaluating his performance and his employment, you know, trying to investigate everything. And again, you're a missionary in the school. You feel called to the school. You get pulled into a situation like that, and they're asking you about why you prayed for a student. Would you not feel pressure to preach the sermon of your life? When am I going to get an audience like this ever again? Would they're asking me? So I'm going to lay it down, and they're going to fire me. But I've got to be faithful to this opportunity. Or I'm just, I've just got to let God be sovereign here. And I'm just not going to speak no comment. No comment, no comment, no comment, no comment. Do what you will. Do what you will. But you know what this guy did? In the, in the very beginning of this kind of judiciary situation, he says, look, guys, we know that um, this is really just a matter of free speech. Like I, the, the teachers who were kind of like offended of what I was doing or whatever – they only want to protect free speech 
uh, unless that free speech is harmful to them, and then it needs to be restricted. Um, so can we just have a conversation about where you guys are at with free speech and restrictions? And they're not, none of them are on the same page. When is free speech? Is it totally allowed wide open? When can it be restricted? On religious grounds, on political grounds? What is harmful, what's not harmful about speech? They just start having this like wide open conversation. And they do it for like 30, 45, 60 minutes, and eventually they're like, man, can you just, why are you here? Why are you here again? Could you just, we're, ha we're trying to have a meeting about free speech. <laughs> I'm sorry I walked in. I don't know why I'm here. I just... Uh, Now, was that, did he fail as a missionary? Or was it wise? What would Jesus do? But from his, or just on the phone, his conviction is not these administrators. His conviction is these kids. So to whom must I give an account at the end of my life? And for what? So I could preach a sermon on my life, and feel great about it, but if I lose access to these kids that I love and I've built rapport with and reputation and served, I've failed, actually. I just got to find my way out of this. And let some other person who's called to faculty and principals deal with these people. I, I'm not, but it's not me. It's not me right now. Your calling does, doesn't just give you future purpose. I really need you to explore it. Like, it doesn't just give you future purpose. It gives you current wisdom, day-to-day -day wisdom. That not every fight is to be engaged, not every opportunity is to be taken, not every suffering is to be endured. Paul didn't leave his calling as a meta-narrative of the direction of his life. He embraced his calling as a micro-narrative of his life. A critical variable in every decision, a source of godly wisdom. There's a, there's a book out right now uh, by a guy named Gary Keller. It's called The One Thing. It's not a Christian book. It, it Sometimes it feels a little self-helpy in your best life now or whatever, but it's a bestseller, and I gave it a quick read. And, and he just has this little line where he says, going small. The whole book is just about like singular focus, and it's, it's about basically like what, what do you want to accomplish with your life? The, the more narrow that thing is, the more you will accomplish. Wild idea. Wild, crazy thought. And then, he, and then he, he kind of evaluates like how, how you have to analyze like everything in your life in terms of that one thing that you want to accomplish. He has this little line where he says, Going small is ignoring all the things you could do and doing what you should do. It's recognizing that not all things matter equally and finding the things that matter most. It's a tighter way to connect what you do with what you want. It's realizing that extraordinary results are directly determined by how narrow you can make your focus. And when you go as small as possible, you'll be staring at one thing, and that's the point. Now this guy that's not a believer, I, I think he just incidentally wrote a book about calling. And that we don't actually get to decide what the one thing is for me. But someone greater, whose thoughts are higher than my thoughts, whose ways are higher than my ways, will actually tell me what my life is to be about. And I will surrender and submit the fullness of who I am to that word, and to that king, and to that voice. But I think it's still good wisdom. The calling is not just intended as about future dreaming or direction, but entire life alignment to it. 
whether you're bivocational or co-vocational. What I mean by that is whether you, you, you feel called to your neighborhood, but you still got to pay the bills, so you got to go make tents or cut hair or, or work downtown or start a restaurant or whatever, but you don't, you don't see your work as the thing that God has called you to do. Your work is what helps you live to do the thing that God has called you do, to do. You still have to like be a Christian in those spaces, but, it's, but those people might not be like the primary focus of your life. Or if you're co-vocational, like you're literally doing full-time the thing that you believe God has called you to do. Whether that's like what some people would call ministry and sacred, but I actually think all things are sacred. So like if you're, if you're working in a downtown building and you might actually think, this is actually paying my bills and this, these are the people to whom I'm called to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God on the seventh floor of this downtown building. And it's all weaved together. And you're trying to create maybe even a, an expression of the church in that place, in that place, through that work. Whether you're bivocational or co-vocational or no-vocational, it's okay. It's all right. <laughs> you may be no-vocational. Calling is, is not just uh, for one type of people, one kind of working space, and it's completely aligned. When Jesus speaks a word about your life, about your purpose, your whole life should be placed in submission and alignment to that word. So now, that sounds great, right? Amen. Lots of amens. So good. Can we actually talk practically about how that looks? Because now it's going to get a little gross. You know, when you, it's like, amen, and then now we'll start talking about some things. This has to do with your relationships. You can't actually be best friends with everybody in the whole world. <laughs> it's actually unwise to try to be best friends with everybody you meet. It's impractical to think you can. And I actually think like you're, you're, you're the, the best friends that you have that you do like deep life on life with should not just be a, a matter of preference for you. It should actually be, to some degree, a matter of calling, aligned to your calling. Like, who is going to contribute to making me who I am in such a way that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue in the way God is, is leading me? In every relationship, if we're wearing our WWJD bracelet, we're going to want to just like be like deep level, life on life. We're going to want everybody to be Peter and James and John and just go like create, have 178 best friends, 178 accountability groups, 137 coffee meetings and dinners. And, you know, you just want to go crazy deep with anybody who wants to go crazy deep with you. But your calling might make you a little bit distant from certain people. And they might perceive you as rude because you are distant. But there is literally nothing you can do about that. Because you, you will be uh, 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 deeply invested in people to whom God is sending you to love, to serve, to lead, to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. And there are other people who are not. And you can still be kind and cordial, but some people might come with expectations that you just can't submit yourself to. Not just relationships, it's time. I mean, if you, if you diagrammed your time on a day-to-day -day basis, on a month-to-month -month basis, how much time is legitimately connected directly or indirectly to that one thing that you are called to do? And how much of it is stuff that's just, you, you're not, you really got to go six or seven degrees to try to connect that thing to what God has asked you to do. And time is actually still connected to relationship. It's, it's a little bit of both. I, I know this is hard, but people that you are called to should perceive you as available. 
People you are not called to might perceive you as busy, unavailable. But I actually think you're going to have to answer to God for whom perceives you to be available and who perceives you to be unavailable and aloof. And there are some people who are going to have a really hard time getting a hold of you and be frustrated by that. And uh, you might have to like make peace with that because of aligning the fullness of your life around what God has asked you to do. Your money? Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't think you should just give your money to anything and everything. I, I, um, I actually think you should discern uh, uh, where you give. I th well, first of all, you should give money. You should, you should be generous. You should give money. Uh, um, but I actually think uh, giving is like a, a spiritual matter that, that we should actually, again, try to consider our wallet and our dollars to be in line with who God is asking us to be and what he's calling us to do. And giving to things that uh, uh, matter to us in a deep, intrinsic way. But I'll just give one quick example. First year my wife and I were married, first year and a half, you know, we'd, we'd, make, a, we'd make a budget. We'd make like a, you should make a budget. <laughs> you should make a budget. We had like a little giving line of our budget. And what we would do at the, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. What we would do is we would like, like set an amount we need to give. And then we would commit all, every dime of that money for the whole year. So if, if anything comes up in the middle of the year, there's like, sorry, no, we don't have anything. But at simultaneously, we felt deeply called to neighborhood ministry. We've always done like kind of neighborhood ministry stuff. And people would come to our house all the time, either just asking like, oh my gosh, I just need a bus pass really quick. I'm, I'm late for work. And we don't have anything. Or they would be asking like, I'm looking for work. I'd love to rake your yard. Would you pay me to break, break your yard or something like that? And we don't have anything. And we had actually designed our, our giving in a way that wasn't quite aligned with our calling to the neighborhood. So about a year and a half in, we started to figure out, we actually have to make a budget line that's about $35 a month that's dedicated to benevolence to the neighborhood. And if nothing happens in the month, it just carries over to the next month. And then you got $70 the next month. Or if it carries over for three months, you can really bless somebody. If they, you know, their, their AC breaks or something like that. You can contribute a, a large amount. It's just a quick example. Your money, I also think, should align to, to who you sense God is calling you to be and to, to, the, to the artwork that he's doing in you toward what he's calling you to do. Family, the rhythms of family, how you, how you perceive family, the way that your family discerns family time or how much family time or what kind of family time. I, I actually think that should be on the table when you're called to discern what it means to be family among those to whom you are called to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. If you're, if you're called to what would be um, a high communal household environment and a low, low like immediate family environment, you might actually, as a contrast community, you might actually embrace a, a slightly higher family ethic. So that when people are conversing with you and they're like, let's go, play, let's go play cards every night or whatever. Occasionally you should say, I actually need to go invest in my wife and disciple my kids tonight. Which might be like, whoa, wait, what? Or you might actually, which is more common for us, you might step into a very extremely unhealthily high family context. With almost no value for community or larger household. And it might be important for you in that environment not to have five family nights out of the week. But to be able to say, we're just opening our home two or three nights a week.
for like whoever to come in. These are missionary decisions. Do you see that? Aligned with who God is leading you to be, how God is leading you to function, where he is sending you to be. Your house, your neighborhood, the house you buy, where you live, I think, it's a, I, I think it's less a matter of Zillow and escrow and more a matter of prayer and fasting. Um, I think your, your work, where you work, how you work, who you work with, I actually think a whole lot of things in terms of vocation should actually be discerned with conviction in terms of calling. Uh, who you relate with at work more, who you relate with a little less, how you relate with them, the, the way you design your office. Do you want to design your office to be like a solitude and work and study space? Uh, because that's what God has called you to do in that space. Do you want to design your office to be hospitable, more chairs, people can hang out? Uh, uh, I, what decorations do you put up? What route do you take to the coffee pot? Who do you see on that route? Who do you not see on that route? Where do you park? My, da my dad, my whole life, has parked as far away from buildings as possible because he doesn't want to take a spot from somebody who needs it closer. I, I just think like, uh, like calling can actually help you give godly wisdom in all things. Every detail, actually. Every detail with conviction. Your calling doesn't just give you future purpose, but it gives you current wisdom, deep wisdom, constant wisdom. Not every fight is to be engaged. Not every opportunity is to be taken. Not every suffering is to be endured. The worship team would come up. I just have uh, this, this, last, this last kind of uh, uh, line in this text where Paul is taken away. He's taken away from this volatile situation. And he's put in chains and barracks. And he sits there for a whole day. I just want you to imagine that. He sits there for a whole day after this encounter. And the next night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. I'm still here. I'm still here. And you were right. You know what Paul was doing in those barracks? Here's what I would think. I think Paul's sitting in those barracks for a day wondering, Did I do the right thing? I think he's sitting in there for a day wondering, should I have preached the sermon of my life? Should I have stayed silent and just trusted the sovereignty of God? Just let whatever happen. Was that actually my moment to die and I just tried to escape it because I'm a coward? I think he'd be sitting in those barracks for 24 hours thinking about Jesus and thinking about Stephen and thinking about so many others who did that, who didn't get away from suffering. And wondering, just a quick minute, I know, God, I know I'm called to Rome. I know you said that. But should I have died? Did I do the right thing? Was it right? Did I hear you right in the first place? Because I just tried to escape a situation that not a lot of people escape because I thought I heard you right. Did I hear you right? Should he have preached? Should he have spoke up? Should he have de defended himself more? Should he, have, should he have died? And if he was supposed to preach, if he was supposed to stay silent, if he was supposed to die, then every minute of suffering in these, barrier, in this, in these barracks is not for any purpose, not for any meaning, not for any worth. It's suffering that would be worthless, purposeless, meaningless. Because he somehow missed what God was doing. And Paul needed to hear it again. He needed to hear it again. It was like this morning when Melissa was leading us in worship. And she, she, 
she just kept calling us, Daddy, do it again. Daddy, do it again. Come, God. Speak again. Encounter us again. Say a word again. We need it again. One's not enough. Two's not enough. A dozen's not enough. We need it again. Paul needed to hear it again. He needed Jesus to do it again. He needed him to show up again. The Damascus road wasn't enough. The vision at Troas wasn't enough. Hearing from the Lord about Rome wasn't enough. He needed it again. He needed another touch, another word. And we need that too. And my friend, the teacher, he needed that too. That's why he was calling me. He wasn't just calling me out of the blue years and years later just to see, how, see what's going on. How's it going, man? How are your kids? He needed, he needed a word. And it became very clear. He's sitting there wondering, did I just blow the chance to preach the sermon of my life to those administrators? Did I blow it? Is God even with me anymore in this? And he needed it again. I remember the, the, I, the first time I, I experienced the, the calling lab, I wasn't a participant. I was up in Illinois and I wanted to do one. And I invited somebody from Tampa Underground up to lead a calling lab, up at, to, to help our people discern all day on a Saturday. What are you called to? Listen to Jesus. Listen in community. Ask God, who, who are you making me to be? What are you making me to do? And I came into that thinking, I already know what I'm called to. I'm good. I'm just leading this for other people because they need it. I don't need it. I already know what I'm called to. And I just kind of sat in the back the whole time watching everything happening and just kind of trying to lead. And I have got, got my responsibility hat on, my leader hat on. And I'm telling you, I was, I was in the barracks and I didn't even know it. I was in the barracks and I was wrestling with I, if I had made right decisions, if I had heard right, if I was a crazy person. And I needed that calling line probably more than anybody else in that room. And I didn't even know it. I needed God to come to me, particularly in the afternoon when we just went on the silent retreat. I just, God, I just needed God to come to me and say, take courage. I'm with you. You're not crazy. Keep going. I'm with you. You need that too. This morning, I want you to ask God to do it again. I want you to ask him to speak again, to call you again, to send you again, to pass by again, to whisper again in the... In the, in, be in the present with you again, to fill you again, to set you ablaze again. I want you to come this morning and ask for that. Just say, God, what? It, it, come, God, come. And just constantly be in a posture of asking for that. Come, God, speak. I'm listening. Come. What you told me three years ago, I either need to hear it again or I need to hear something else. Come. On the night he was betrayed, he... took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in memory of me. So this morning, as we come to the table underground community, I want you to come and give your life, just surrender your whole life. Not just your whole future, but your day-to-day -day life. Your every decision, your time, your calendar, your relationships, your work, 
your house, your neighborhood. Give it all this morning to Jesus, knowing that you don't have to discern what a dead man from 2,000 years ago would do today. You can encounter the living, resurrected God right now. He can come speak to you right now, right now. And he wants to encounter you right now. He wants to say a word. Even if it's the same thing that you've known for two years, he wants to come. He wants to be present with you. He wants to stand with you this morning and speak what you need. And so, community, this morning, when you're ready, the element's given for you.